Well, I do greet you once again, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you again on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Dear saints of God, in the fifth chapter, and in this fifth chapter, I should say, uh, there is one profound and dominant chord that is being struck. And it is that the eternal Son of God, the first and the last, and Jesus Christ who assumed our flesh, the living one that was dead, is now victoriously alive forevermore. He has promised to return as the conqueror and as the consummator of all things. For his glory, and he is worthy of all glory. Brothers and sisters, that is the chord of the fifth chapter. Not just of the fifth chapter, though. That is the the note, the chord, sung and played throughout the entire book of Revelation. That's it. Lord willing, when we come to the end of this apocalypse, if your ear has not been fine-tuned to know that chord, to sing that note, then you've missed the point. If when we come to the end of this, Lord willing, if you have not learned by God's grace to sing and to play along with the host of heaven, then you will be out of tune. You will have missed the point. This letter, initially written to seven churches in Asia Minor, contains a message that can, that extends to the whole of the body of Christ, the whole church, until Christ returns. And God communicates to the church, to all people of all time who are in Christ, that amidst all of the turbulence of history, amidst all the confusion and turmoil of history, Jesus Christ rules. And Jesus Christ reigns as the victorious Son of God and Son of Man. In the fourth chapter... We consider the stunning vision communicated to John of the absolute glory of the great I am. Seated on his throne, there John symbolically sees the radiance, the brilliance, and the pure, unapproachable, glorious light in which the Almighty dwells. God Almighty is envisioned as ruling from the throne of heaven. And he is positioned at the center of heaven. Because, dear brothers and sisters, all of the wonders of heaven, all of the mysterious things of heaven, they pale in comparison to that which is at the center of heaven, God on his throne. And may I say to you also that God at the center of heaven's throne should be your great desire to see. 
God at the center of his throne, in his brilliance and in his radiance, in his absolute glory, should be your one enduring desire when you reach that place of glory. If there is anything else that you are hoping that will be the center of heaven, then you will miss heaven. If you are longing to see a loved one who has passed, hoping that they will be the center of heaven, you will miss heaven. If you are longing to see streets of gold, thinking that they are the center of heaven, you've missed heaven. God enthroned in his brilliance, in his radiance, and in his glory. He alone is the center of heaven's glory. Heaven is glorious because God is there. Heaven is wonderful because God is there. Heaven is brilliant because God is there. Before the throne of God above, there is perfect order. All of the enemies of God have been subdued. All evil has been subdued. Death is subdued. The dragon, as we we shall see, is subdued. He is defeated. That's the scene from heaven. God is glorious. All of his enemies have been brought down low. But from earth, from the vantage point of where we dwell, things are quite different, aren't aren't they? The seven churches of Asia Minor were experiencing great suffering. Chaos, tribulation, and all of these things would intensify persecution, opposition, exclusion, poverty, pressure to offer worship to false gods, and even death. These sore providences were a testing of the faith of the church. These things come in our lives to test our faith as well. These things were a trial by fire for them. So that their faith of being of greater worth than gold, even precious gold, might be proven to be genuine at the appearing of our Lord. And these same testings that you and I experience, they are the same testing of faith. So that when our Lord appears, our faith might be proven to be genuine and sincere, more precious than silver and gold. The trial of faith was not only for these seven churches, but again, For all of us who place our faith in Christ alone, our tribulation here in this country, in the West, it may not be as intense as it was during the time of these churches. But brothers and sisters, we are not exempt from suffering, are we? We are not above suffering, are we? But when we suffer like these churches and when we are in the midst of these sore providences, The Lord Jesus Christ offers comforting promises to those who persevere. Comforting promises to those who overcome. Comforting promises to those who are faithful even unto death. He promises to you, to you that he has a garment of white that has been laid aside for you. He promises to you that he has a crown of glory that he will crown you with on that great day. And he promises to you. That there is a place next to him where you can reign with him in the new creation. Brothers and sisters, what a consolation this is for the church. What, what comfort this is for the church in the midst of all of our sufferings, in the midst of all of our tribulation, in the midst of all of our trouble. Christ has offered to us precious, precious promises. I pray, dear saints, that, that these promises, they are enough. For you to continue your battle 
They are enough for you to continue to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I pray they are enough. I pray that they are enough for you to not look back at Sodom and Gomorrah, but to continue to fix your eyes on Christ alone. I pray that these promises, that they are enough. I pray that you long for heaven and that you long for the, the glory of heaven, which is Christ alone. These fourth and fifth chapters, they are communicating just that. And here in the fifth chapter, uh, the point is simply this, that we might fix our eyes upon the conquering lion of Judah, upon the root of David, the lamb standing as if slain, declaring his victory over all of his foes. I pray that that would be your great vision as you walk through not only this fifth chapter, but through all of the book of Revelation. Here we are given insight to know and to believe that Jesus Christ, the one despised and the one rejected by men, the crucified one, is the exalted one. That he is the one in whom all of the heavens, all of the, the host of heaven, they adore. There is a throne in heaven and worship that is being offered to Christ. And we are a worshiping people, are we not? We are made in the image of God. You and I have been created for worship. Little ones, why do you exist? Little ones, why are you here? You have been made in the image of God so that you might worship God. You have been made to be a worshiper of God. You have been created so that you might worship God alone. But we became polluted by sin, didn't we? We became corrupted by sin. And now rather than offering worship to the one that we have been created to worship, we offer, we offer worship to created things rather than to, to, to the creator who is forever blessed. But in Christ, praise be to God in Christ. Praise be to God in Christ. Our purpose for existing, it's been recalibrated. Praise be to God that our purpose for living has been refocused. Our vision has been corrected. From worshiping created things to now worshiping the creator alone. Praise be to God that he has fixed our eyes, not on ourselves as they used to be, but God in his mercy has fixed our eyes on Christ where it should be. And brothers and sisters, we are now a worshiping people, worshiping rightly, worshiping truly, or as Jesus says, worshiping in spirit and in truth and in heaven we experience the fullness of the purpose of our experience, of our existence. In heaven, we will know to the fullness. Now we know in shadow. Now we know in, in, in portions. But in heaven, we will know in full. Without the, the presence of sin, the purpose of our existence, to worship the one enthroned, to worship the Lamb. In the fifth chapter, the Lord continues to communicate symbolic visions to the beloved Apostle John. John sees... And anthropomorphism. And that he is given the image of God Almighty holding a book in his right hand. You've heard the word anthropomorphism before. And you hear it all the time in scriptures, don't you? Anthropomorphisms are simply attributing human features to the divine. Attributing human actions to the divine. You will see verses like, and listen to them closely, the eyes... The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth. You've heard that before. You've heard verses like the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. These are anthropomorphisms. 
of the Almighty. God does not have human features like a man. God is not cobbled together with human body parts. God is spirit. These anthropomorphic passages are speaking by way of analogy. Something that is true about God. God is omniscient. His eyes do go to and fro throughout the earth because God knows all. He analogically sees all. God is omniscient. His arm is not too short because God is all-powerful. He is able to save all whom he has chosen to save. There is none outside of the reach of his salvation. God is omnipresent. He hears all, but he also is everywhere at all times. There is nowhere where God is not. There is no escaping the presence of God. And David said, whether I go to the, the heights of heaven, you are there. To the bellies of the earth, you are there. Even below the earth, to Sheol, you are there. There is nowhere where God is not. And so, here John sees this anthropomorphism that in the right hand, God does not have a right hand, but in his hand of authority, God holds all authority in his hand. And there is a book that has been sealed by God. It's meant to communicate that this is God's book. And only one who has equal authority with God is authorized to break its seals, to reveal and to carry out all that is contained within this book. We have learned that the contents of this book are very simply this, the redemptive plans and purposes of God. They are simply this, the redemptive plans and purposes of God. What's in the book? The plans and purposes of God. But there is a great dilemma, isn't there? Expressed in verse 2, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? It's the question that rings out throughout heaven and earth and even under the earth. Who is worthy? It's what we discussed last week. Who is worthy? And there initially appears to be no one worthy. And so John, our brother, begins to weep. John perceives that the hope of salvation, the security of the church, the vindication of the martyrs, and even the death of Christ was all for naught. And he begins to weep in despair. You can imagine in your mind's eye, John weeping in despair. It's all hopeless. It's all meaningless. It's, it's all been for nothing. Like Mary who wept at the tomb of Jesus. Believing that the, the tomb or the body of Christ had been stolen. Weeping. They've taken my master. It's all ruined. But dear saints, the word of God declares that weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning. Was it not a, a glorious morning when the angel said to Mary, why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here. Behold, he is risen. And in the same way, one of the 24 elders calls out to John and says to John, stop weeping. Stop weeping. It was a glorious morning for John. As the elder says to John, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ in his flesh is the promised lion that would arise from the tribe of Judah. You know this. Great kings arose from the tribe of Judah. King David, the slayer of Goliath. Who slayed Goliath by faith with a sling and a stone. He was from the tribe of Judah. Solomon, King Solomon, 
the one who was considered to be at that time the wisest among all the men and among all the kings, rich with great splendor. He was also from Judah's tribe. But brothers and sisters, David in all of his might, Solomon in all of his wisdom and splendor, they pale in comparison to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of all kings. He is the most wise, most glorious of all. And the elder testifies that the lion through or though through the, the tribe or lineage of David, Judah, that the lion is the root of David. Have you seen that there? The scriptures say that the elder says to John, behold, the lion of Judah, but the root of David. Christ, therefore, the elder is proclaiming, Christ is from Judah, but he's the cause of Judah. He's the root of Judah. Therefore, Christ does not come from David. David comes from Christ. Christ is the root of David. There would be no David without Christ. There would be no existence of David, no King David, no slayer of Goliath. Without Christ, there would be no wisdom of Solomon, no splendor of Solomon. Without Solomon's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. From Christ emerged the tree, from Christ emerged the branches, from Christ emerged the fruit and all who are in him. We are the vine, or he is the vine, we are the branches, isn't it? Christ is the greater David. Christ is the greater Solomon. And Christ is the greater of all kings and all uh, princes who ever lived. Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and in the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And the elder calls John, listen, to behold... You've heard that word many times in Scripture. That there are many beholds throughout the Word of God. It is both a call to take heed, to listen well, to listen to the declaration that is being pronounced. And behold is also a call to look upon, to fix your gaze upon. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, Isaiah says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And when in the fullness of time, Emmanuel, God with us, assumed our flesh, John the Baptist testified there in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes one, a man who is of higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, and truly man in our flesh, one person with two natures, full of the Spirit without measure, walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem in perfect obedience of the righteous law of God. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Christ is the exemplar of holiness and perfection. 
Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Brothers and sisters, rejoice for this. No sin could tempt Christ. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in this. No violation of the law could entice Christ. Rejoice in this. Christ could not be led astray. Amen. Rejoice in this. Christ could not be lured away yeah. by Tim's, by sin's empty promises. Not like you and I. Christ was never confused. Christ was never incorrect. Christ was never regretful. Not like you and I. Christ perfectly knew the will of God and the purpose of God for his mission on earth. No confusion. No distortion. Perfect understanding. And when John the Baptist sent word to ask Christ, is, is he the Christ? Or should we be looking for someone else? Our Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, tells John, look at the signs. Look at the signs. He healed the sick. Gave sight to the blind. Rose the dead to new life. And these signs pointed to the healing that Christ gives for the illness of our sin. These signs point to the blindness that Christ would restore for us. That we would no longer be blind. Walking about in darkness. But that He would give us sight to see Him. These signs pointed to the fact that Christ would raise us. A generation, a race of Lazaruses. That He would raise us from the dead simply by calling our name. That He would look upon us, these dry bones, and cause us by His Spirit to live. Christ would accomplish His salvation by sacrificially laying down His life in the place of sinful man for 30 pieces of silver. The Son of God and Son of Man was betrayed by one of His own disciples. Before the religious leaders, he was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was flogged. He was whipped. And when Christ was eventually and finally presented to Pilate to be condemned or to be released, he would not open his mouth. The scriptures say that he was silent as a sheep is led to the slaughter. The Roman governor Pilate overestimated his power, saying to Christ, who would not speak a word, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you or power to release you? And Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, corrected the overestimation of Pilate's power, did he not? You, he says, would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Who is this man? Pilate must have wondered. Who is this man that stands before me? Pilate must have wondered. And finally, when he brings the God-man, very God of very God, man, uh, both man and God, when he brings him to stand before the assembled crowd who are crucifying, who are shouting, crucify him, Pilate says to the crowd, behold, behold the man. Unwittingly, he says, I believe. Behold the man. Here is the man that will die. Here is the man that has been wounded. Here is the man that will be crucified. And it was this man that would carry his cross up Golgotha's hill where he would be nailed to a tree 
And there he would bear the sins of the entire world. There on the cross, Christ suffered the penalty of death. The penalty of death or the penalty of sin was death. And it was not a supposed death. It was not a hypothetical death. It did not just appear as though he died, but he did not really die. Christ truly died. Christ, there on the cross, bore the weight of our sin. Christ, on the cross, truly died. But dear ones, there is good news, isn't there? It's the good news that was being pronounced to John in his vision in Revelation. It's the good gospel news that Christ is no longer dead. But behold, he is alive forevermore. It was the announcement to the angels, or from the angels, to the women who came to the empty tomb of Christ. He is not here. He is risen. It was the announcement that Christ gave to his disciples when he appeared to them behind their locked doors, saying to them, peace be with you. Showing them his hands and his feet, saying to them, do not doubt any longer. Believe, he said to Thomas, and and blessed are you, are they who do not see me and yet believe. They did not need the proof like Thomas did. We, by the grace of God, have been given faith to believe in Christ, though we have not seen him. Jesus is fully animated by the Holy Spirit and thus is worthy in divine power to take and to open that scroll, to reveal and to accomplish all of God's redemptive purposes. Christ is worthy. Christ triumphs not by devouring his enemies like a lion. It's ironic, isn't it? But but rather, ironically, triumphs as the lamb who sacrificially lays down his life as a ransom for his people. Christ could have decreed to devour his enemies like a lion. And he will. In his next return, Christ will be the conquering lion. He is still the conquering lion, even though he is a lamb. But the eternal decree was that Christ would triumph over his enemies through gentle humility. He triumphs through meekness. He triumphs through meekness. One of our, one of the elders of, of, to our brother John said, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to take and open the book and its seven seals. John will see there in the inner courts of the throne, the lamb standing as if slain and Christ stands. Christ, as I said last week, he's no longer slain. His sacrificial work stands for all of those who will place their faith in him alone. But Christ is not slain. Christ stands. Christ is alive forevermore. Romans 6 and 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died. He died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ is alive. Christ lives. Christ lives. Christ lives. Christ is alive. 
Christ is alive forevermore. Jesus lives. He is no longer slain. He lives. Brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to despair, remind yourself of this. Christ lives. Brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to fear, remind yourself of this. Christ is alive. Recall that Christ lives when you are doubting your own justification. When you are doubting whether or not glory is ahead of you, remind yourself of this. Christ lives. And all who are in Christ likewise live. Christ, the eternal Son of God, has the seven spirits of God, the seven horns, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He truly sees all and knows all. He has complete authority, complete power, and the horns are a symbol of His victory. Crown Him, crown Him, crown Him, crown Him. We sang a few moments ago, didn't we? Christ is worthy, not just because, and not only because, I should say, of His redemptive work that has been accomplished, but Christ is worthy because of His divine person. Mm. Don't lose sight of that. Christ is worthy, not just because of His redemptive victory, but because of His eternal divine person. Only one who is equal with the Father could ascend. Think of the... If you can imagine just for a moment without being uh, heretical and without breaking a commandment of, of images, if you can imagine for just a moment the Holy One, the Lamb of God ascending to the throne of the Holy One, the Almighty, and taking from the, the, the hand of authority the book to reveal and to accomplish all of their plans and purposes. What a vision to receive. Only one equal with the Almighty can take from the hands of the Almighty the book to reveal and to carry out all of the plans and purposes of God. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm going to say this at least three times, concerning His equality with the Father. I and my Father are one, John 10.30. Jesus said concerning His equality with the Father, let your not let your heart not be troubled. Believe in God. Listen to how he says, believe also in me. What audacity. Unless you are one who is of equal, of equality with the Father. He says concerning his equality with the Father, my Father has been working until now. And I have been working. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Because Christ is equal with the Father. Christ said concerning his equality with the Father in the beginning, the word of God says, was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of one, the only begotten son. Gregory of Nazianzus, thank you, Pastor Isaiah. He comes forth, God, with what he assumes. One from two opposites, flesh and spirit. The one defined the other. The one, the one deifying, the other deified. Oh, new mixture. Oh, the paradoxical, paradoxical blending. One person and two natures. He is worthy because he is God. You tell your children, Jesus, why should we praise him? Why should we worship him? Because he died for my sins. Yes, 
but because He is very God of very God. Why should we praise and offer worship to Christ? Yes, because of His redemptive work. We don't discount that. But because He is divine. He is God. And He is worthy of our praise. His worthiness is the worthiness of victory on the one hand, but it is also worthiness of the divine person on the other. He is exalted as the Father is exalted. The worship and adoration that is offered to the one enthroned, if you notice, is also likewise offered to the Lamb of God who was slain. They're not singing songs and hymns to angels. They're singing only to the Almighty and to the Son. Brothers and sisters, right worship exalts the Father. Right worship exalts the Son. Right worship exalts the Spirit. Right worship does not exclude any persons of the one true God. Right worship does not denote more power to one of the persons than the other. They are one God of one essence, of equal essence and equal authority and power. We do not say one is greater than the other. They are one God. Three persons. We worship the Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And all of the entourage of heaven. They fall down and they worship and offer worship to the Lamb of God. And in their hands, you notice, there are harps and there are bowls. Which John says are meant to represent the prayers of the saints. What a picture. This represents the worship of the church. We sing. We offer our hearts to God. The 24 elders, they prostrate themselves before the risen Christ. And we too prostrate ourselves before Christ alone. We worship Christ. We worship Him with reverence. We worship Him with awe. We worship Him by faith. We worship Him in sincerity. We worship Christ. Not the way that we like to but in the way that he has commanded. Brother, would you mind turning on the AC? They're playing harps. They are singing. There is prayer. And it is all an encouragement for us to do this. Remember that when we come to worship, we don't just engage our hearts. We also engage our minds. When we come and worship, we don't just engage our hearts. We don't just wait to feel something. And we don't wait or depend upon someone standing here or a song being played there. To move us to feel something. Because we don't just bring our feelings to worship. If you only worship with your feelings, how many times would you not come and worship? Because how many times do you not feel like worshiping? We don't leave our minds at home and bring only our hearts, hoping that our hearts will get some kind of shock so that we can worship God in a new and more spectacular way. No. And we don't just bring our minds while leaving our hearts at home. Saying, I need to learn something extremely deep today. I don't need to feel anything for Christ. I just need to know. No, we bring the whole of our person, don't we? We bring our our mind, our strength, our hearts, which encompasses our soul. Because we are called to worship with the whole of who we are, aren't we? 
Worship requires not parts of us, but the whole of us. We've been given new hearts, haven't we? We've been given new minds, haven't we? And so we bring all of those together to worship God when we come. And God does what? He ignites through understanding our hearts. We grow in love as we grow in understanding. But they work together. You cannot love what you don't know. Have you ever tried this food? I've never tried it before. You'll love it. You can't say, I already love it. You'll say, once I try it, then I'll know whether or not I love it because you're gaining a knowledge of it. Some of you experienced that yesterday during your Christmas gatherings. Try it, you'll love it. You tried it, you didn't love it. Or you tried it and you did love it. But either way, you loved by way of knowledge. We cannot love what we do not know. Therefore, our worship is to be fully engaged. When the preacher is preaching, we are engaged in this. Why? We're engaging our minds. We're engaging our hearts. We're bringing the, the, the whole of who we are as a sacrifice of praise. We are offering our bodies, as Paul says, as a living sacrifice to God. We're bringing our minds. We're bringing our hearts. And God is inflaming them both. He's filling them both with Him, with love for Him, with, with desire for Him. prayers of the saints, they are those. They, they, they are representative of that true worship that we offer to God. We are to pray for His will to be done in heaven as it is on earth. Amen. That which is done in heaven to be done on earth. And it's fitting that Christ has taken the scroll to execute that which is done in heaven to be done here on earth. And in response to His victory, they sing this song, verse 9 and 10. Let's read. A new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Notice, brothers and sisters, the work of Christ. He is worthy because he was slain. And in that blessed work, he purchased for God a nation. With his blood. And he has made them a result to be a kingdom of priests to God and they will reign. It's the summation of the work of the incarnated Christ. What is the work of the incarnated Christ? There it is. What has Christ done in his assuming our flesh? There it is. The blood shed by Christ purchased a people enslaved by sin. He has ransomed all of his people from the, from the dominion of darkness. And brought them into his light. Christ has made of these people one creation. One nation. One people. Christ being the firstborn of that new creation. They are a kingdom. Full of kings. And priests in Christ as we reign. And and then John says. Then I looked in verse 11. At the worship of Christ. John sees that it is not only. Listen to this. It's not only the 24 elders and the four living creatures who worship Christ and proclaim his worthiness. But John's eyes are expanded to see something even more vast. John says, then I looked and I saw myriads of myriads 
and thousands of thousands. John is saying, I looked and saw an innumerable amount of angels. John, myriads of 10,000. John said, myriads of myriads. 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands times thousands. John's saying, I looked and I could see nothing but a sea of angels. They're not in the millions. They're not even in the trillions. They're in a number that cannot be counted. And they offered their praise in response to the victorious song that was sung to the Lamb. They offered their praise. And this is significant because angels, they do not know what it is to be redeemed. They do not know sin like you and I know sin. They do not necessarily need the blood of Christ the way you and I need the blood of Christ. They learn of the glory of Christ. And his saving work in redeeming the, the sin or redeeming the church from the punishment of sin. They learn. It's what Peter describes in the redemptive work of God as, as things that angels long to peer into. They're looking at, at the, the redemption of Christ. They're looking at the salvation that we receive and they long to peer, to know, to understand what that is. And now through the Lamb, Standing as if slain, they are given a sense of knowledge. They are given a sense of the victorious work of Christ through his sacrifice for the church. And in response to that which they have perceived, the myriads and the myriads, the thousands and the thousands, they offer their own praise to Christ. And it is, if you notice, a sevenfold offering of worship. Look there. It's worship that is completely ascribed to Christ in all of the glorious possessions that belong properly to God. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain, listen to this, to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. You see that seven there? In the Greek, uh, the word before power, there is the word the, which is called in Greek, it's called a definite article, which means that everything that follows is absolute. Christ, therefore, is worthy to receive the power. Meaning what? In other words, Christ is worthy to receive the power, the riches, the wisdom, the might, the honor, the glory, the blessing. Christ is worthy of the fullness of power, praise, blessing. It all belongs to him. What once seemed like defeat for the crucified Christ was actually the display of the power of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross was viewed as being poverty. But in actuality, it was the riches of His grace. The work of Christ on the cross was viewed as being foolishness. But it is the display of the wisdom of Christ. The cross of Christ was viewed as the weakness of Christ. But it is a display of the might of Christ. The, Christ, the cross of Christ was viewed as the shame of Christ. But it is the display of the honor of Christ. The, Christ, the cross of Christ was viewed as the disgrace of Christ, but it is the display of the glory of Christ. The Christ was once viewed as the curse. The cross was once viewed as the curse of Christ. 
but it is the blessing of Christ. And it all belongs to him. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. The scriptures say all of creation, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all together unified, offer praise to the triune God for the work accomplished in his hand. And this portion of the vision concludes with the appropriate response that you and I have been reciting as we've been hearing this sermon. Amen. 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 Do you see it? Look at the last verse. To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, the blessing, the blessing, the honor, the glory, the dominion, Forever and ever. What do we say? Amen. Amen. Together when you're saying amen, you're saying with them who are right now saying amen. You are saying with them. Amen. Dear church. The living creatures saying amen. The elders falling down, offering all worship to Christ. Amen. All of the angels in heaven, the myriads and the myriads. Amen. Don't forget this. This is all meant to be offered for your comfort and for your encouragement. When you are in the hottest part of tribulation, recall the living one and the myriad to declare amen. You say with him, he is alive. Behold the Lamb of God. He is alive. And when you are saying this and, and joining your amen, you're saying, I'm saying it with them. Because this, this is not finality. This is just for the moment. This will end soon. This will pass. And I will be with them presently saying amen. I'm saying it now. I'll be saying it then. Amen. All throughout history, the people of God have likewise, they've looked to these passages, to these glorious truths, and they've found solace in the midst of their tribulation. They've added their amen in the midst of their tribulation. So you, dear ones, you add your amen in the midst of your tribulation. Endure suffering. Christ is worthy. Endure suffering. He is calling you up to his kingdom. You are already a citizen of that kingdom. You are already a king and a priest in that kingdom. We long for and await the blessed return of Christ. Oh, you may have been waiting for point number one throughout this entire sermon. There's only one point. God is worthy. Christ is worthy. The Son of God. The Holy Spirit is worthy of all power Riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. To the one who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever. Pastor Antonio, what's your point? What's point number one? That's it. Only one point. That's the point of the fifth chapter. Dear saints, that's the point of Revelation. We can often get distracted by lesser important matters. What's the first seal? What about that, that first rider? Who's the dragon? 
What of the 144,000? Albeit important matters. But none of them should ever overshadow the great note that we have just struck throughout this entire sermon. God is worthy of all praise. I close with this quote from Richard Phillips. Christ is enthroned. Having redeemed us by his blood. We are now a kingdom of priests to serve him on earth. Knowing that the Savior who loved us reigns over all, let us then get on with the work that he has given us and devote ourselves to the cause of his glory. Let us not be daunted by the winds of earthly change or vain threats of evil powers against us. Why? Christ is sovereign and he is reigning over all things for our good. Therefore, let us press on in faith with the priestly work of worship, witness, and prayer for the sake of his kingdom, of the salvation of those who are here on this earth. To God be the glory. To Christ be the glory. To the Holy Spirit be the glory. Let us pray.